0: Well, I have the same terror in my heart that I had at the beginning of first hour as I came to the pulpit. It's where I did not want this singing to end, uh, but I rejoice in this marvelous text, and I—I have now identified my fear. It is in my own inadequacy when coming to such a profound text with profound riches and truth. I ask the question, who is adequate to communicate these things? It's, and Clearly, uh, none of us are adequate in ourselves. This is a rich text. We're in Romans chapter 9. We are now looking particularly at verses 14 through 18 this morning, and we see the riches of God's Word on display. What is particularly amazing about this passage is what God reveals about Himself in it and the various questions that come out in our heart when God puts himself on display. And we are tested in those moments to determine, does God need our help? Should we say something to clarify what God means when he talks about himself? Do we turn to our systematic theology for an explanation? Do we turn to our favorite group of teachers? Do we turn to our own personal experiences Do we turn to our own logic? Do we turn to something within us to say we can help smooth out the issue here so you don't struggle over the picture of God? I can tell you, even this week, my own heart was tempted as I'm studying to think about how to communicate these things to you and understanding the various questions that are going to come out in your own heart. And I was tempted as I'm reading other pastors and I'm going back through church history to bring up all of these marvelous arguments. And then I get to the end and say, wait, wait a second. God answers the question himself. He said it. Let's just be contented with his answer. Let's just be contented with what he says about himself and that would be sufficient enough for us in the midst of this truth. And yet I found in my own heart the wrestling match that takes place. So I know as we go through this text, you are going to be in the same wrestling match that I am in regards to the greatness of God that is revealed. Then I know that there will be certain fears that will be stirred up because they were fears in my own heart as they were brought out. Then certain questions that will come forth and certain challenges of your own heart and mind. And the answer for all of us is this. God brings up the questions and then he gives the answers. And the test for you and me is, do we believe his answer? Do we come under his word? Are we comforted by God's self-revelation or are we terrified of it and we run away from him? Are we comforted to draw nearer to God and to believe the God of the Bible, or do we think God needs our help? Good thing he saved us. We can fix this for him, which is the tendency of our heart to think, I can fix this problem for you, God. Step back. Let me show you. But that's not how we come to the scriptures. We come to be taught by God. We come to let the questions come out and then hear God's answers as to what the answers are to His the questions that are brought out. And this text before us is exactly what theologians have called the wall of worship. We come to a text, we come to an issue that is so much greater than us that all it could do in us is produce a humble response that we bow before God We recognize his marvelous ways because when we begin to wrap our minds around the implications, they are overwhelming for us. That's exactly what's demonstrated here. And it brings up a question, and when we're challenged by certain things in the scriptures, how do we respond? When God, through his word, speaks and he brings out a message and it challenges you, do you have the tendency to run away from God in fear and dread, or do you run to God? might be in the same way in fear and dread but you know you must draw near to him what comes out in our hearts and it has been again our practice here to come to the word of god knowing that god is truthful god is merciful god is good and righteous in all of his ways so he is trustworthy and reliable so that when we press into a knowledge of god everything he says about himself is absolutely true will not lead us astray Will be for our good and will be for our worship, but will be to the revelation of His glory, the revelation of His character, and is what's best for us to know God as He has revealed Himself. And that's what's going to be demonstrated here as we work through these marvelous truths. We're going to see the riches of the glory of God. Now, as I was thinking about this challenge. I was reading a book this week by John Frame entitled On Theology. It's just a group of chapters of various theological topics that uh, Dr. Frame wrestles through. But he brings out in one of his chapters this quote. He says this. He says, I'm thinking that a lot of theological controversies arise out of a confusion over the distinction between God's transcendence and his imminence. You're like, oh wait, that's just too much theology in the morning. I just can't. Let me explain that, what he means by that. He says this, that the struggle in our theology comes because we're either holding a vantage point of the highness and greatness of God, his otherness, his separateness from creation, or his nearness to it, his relation to it. And the tensions tend to come when we are trying to reconcile these ideas. Is God other? Is he great? Is he grand? Is he glorious and above and sovereignly directed? Or is he near and relating to us? Those tensions are brought out throughout Scripture. That God is other, is separate, has no equals. Marvelous in his grand character and nature he is transcendent. He is above all, and yet he is near to us, relates to us, communes with his people. He is near, He is transcendent, and that he is above all, having no rivals and authorities, and yet he is near that we call on to him as Father. These are glorious tensions that oftentimes are hard to reconcile. And standing from our vantage point, there's one we tend to gravitate to. Some tend to gravitate to the greatness of God, his transcendence. And so they highlight those elements. And others tend to gravitate to his nearness and relatability. And they tend to gravitate to those passages that emphasize that. Frame goes on. He says this, Calvinism is impressed with God's transcendence and doesn't think much about his eminence. Arminianism does the reverse. Some Calvinists get upset when you say that human beings must choose Christ. Yes, God's choices precede theirs, but he does not choose them without decreeing that they will choose him. Choose you this day. Human choice is vitally important. There are these tensions within the scriptures that cause difficulties for us. What are we to emphasize? What are we to say? And we come to certain passages and certain things are emphasized and we think, well, I've got to go back and balance this out. No, we can let God speak. We can let God say what God wishes to say and we can be contented in God's revelation of himself. And that's exactly what will be demonstrated this morning As Paul is writing here, he heads us into one of those grand mysteries. He starts to present the greatness of God. And in presenting this greatness of God, it exposes for us a significant problem. The problem that he's answering is if God had started to work with Israel... And if he called out this nation by his sovereign choice, nothing in them, but by an act of his doing and by his covenant, he comes to Abraham and he calls out Abraham and he promises to bless. And then he delivers that people from the hands of the Egyptians and births a nation if he made those covenant promises and then he because of their rebellion their rejection their hostility to him their obstinance because of their unbelief he then they reject their messiah he turns and he saves the gentiles has god been unfair to israel cuz he is no, he isn't saving them now collectively as a nation saving of course a remnant along the way but he is not saving them collectively as a nation has he abandon them or to ask it a different way as of last week if God decides that he choose Isaac and that through Isaac's birth the descendants of Israel would come and not through Ishmael was God unfair to Ishmael or if God should choose Jacob over Esau though Esau was first born and then came Jacob is God unfair to Esau? If God sovereignly selects one and doesn't select another, is God unjust? That's exactly the question that Paul addresses in our text. In verses 14 through the end of the chapter, verse 33, he asks the question and answers about the fairness of God. And in the midst of this, we see the greatness of God's character on display this morning. So here's our outline, just to head through this. The outline from verse 14 through verse 33 is this. The first question, is God fair? You see that in verses 14 to 18. Then the next question, well, then if he's sovereign, he directs everything. How does he find fault? If you're saying he's sovereign, he chooses, then how can any of us be guilty? Verses 19 through 29, he answers that question. And then what's the conclusion of these great doctrines? The answer is salvation is not by works, but by faith. Verses 30 through 33. Now, we're not going to get through all that today. That's way too much, and you want to eat lunch. So instead, we'll get to the first point. Verses 14 through 18, is God fair? It's the question Paul brings up. It's the natural question, as he says. Notice verses 14 through 18. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or on the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up and demonstrated my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. This is a text. And we can frame it up like this. If we ask the question uh, this way, here's the presenting problem. If God chooses those he will save, is he unjust for not choosing all to be saved? If he chose Jacob and not Esau, is he unjust because he didn't choose Esau? God, how do you answer this difficult question? Again, I would tell you this is the moment where I want to rush in and I want to go to creeds and I want to go to various teachers throughout history and I want to go to systematic theology. I want to go give answers outside of the scriptures, but this is God's answer to that very question. God's answer to this very question is this, verse 15, uh, yeah, verse 15. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God's answer is, I am God and who are you to ask? That's his answer. Well, what right, God, would you have to do that? Well, let's turn over to Exodus 33 and let's just see the context of this marvelous response. Exodus chapter 33 God reveals himself to Moses, and we can see the context of Paul's quote here. God's answer to this various question about fairness is simply I'm God, and this is how I act. I'm God, and I direct in this way and accomplish my purposes in this way. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses is now at the work of bringing Israel out of Egypt. He is leading them, and God is leading Israel. Uh, They're heading into the wilderness, and they're heading towards the promised land. And the people are struggling with now coming to a knowledge of of God. And Moses is there interceding between God and men. And Moses is beginning to question and and wanting to know more about God. And he's asking God, show me your glory, reveal yourself to me so I can understand you and, and know your ways. I want to know, basically, that you're going to take uh, your people and you've brought us out of Egypt and you're not going to lead us into the, the land of our enemies and then abandon us there and they destroy us. God, so show us. No, verse 17 of Exodus chapter 33 says this. And the Lord said to Moses, I also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. Now verse 19, And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And then our quote, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Now, the context is this is God's self-disclosure to Moses. This is God's explanation of who he is. He says, again, 19, I will... Um, I will be gracious or I will cause or make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim the name of the Lord before you I am going to reveal to you Moses my goodness and my glory and then he gives the declare what he does I'll be gracious on whom I'm gracious and compassionate on whom I am compassionate Notice the significance of this that God is saying here to Moses I'm not asking for you for permission To act, Moses, I'm telling you what I do. He's not saying to Moses, uh, is it okay if I do these things? Do you think everyone's going to understand if this is how I'm accomplishing my work? No, he's saying this is what I am. I am good. I have a glorious name that all will see. And I will be compassionate on whom I will and merciful on whom I will. This is what I do. That is God's revelation to Moses. Then, of course, he goes on. He hides Moses in the cleft of a rock. He passes by so Moses could see the backside of God's glory and is impacted by it. God reveals himself to Moses. Moses then, of course, comes back and reveals himself before the people of Israel. Now, turn back to Romans chapter 9. That was the context. The question then comes out. Is there an injustice in God? Verse 14. Is, is God unfair because he chose one and didn't choose another? What's the answer, God, to that question? And the answer is, I am God. I do what I do. I show compassion where I show compassion. I show mercy where I show mercy. And then as if Paul is just driving the point home, verse 16, so then not on the man who wills is literally the rendering. You see in your text, the italics means that the translators are adding it there to bring clarity. But the emphasis is literally not on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Depends on God. He decides, he chooses, he directs. Now, even at that, we just stopped right there. He said, that is profoundly rich. That is. we get your point, Paul? You have made your point very clear. God is God. No one can call God into question. Everything that God does is good. Everything that God does is just. There is none who could rival his authority. And he, God does God things. In the sense God chooses. God accomplishes his purposes. God does it according to his good plan and purposes, and none can question him. We get it, Paul. Let's stop right there. We'll ask the next question. But no, Paul then gives another verse seventeen and just drives home the point. Verse seventeen. So like where I think this is where just the spirit of God moving Paul just drives the knife right in and twists it. Notice for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate the power or my power in you that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Puts Pharaoh right up and says, look what I did to Pharaoh. Now, let me show you what God did to Pharaoh. Let's turn over to Exodus chapter three. and Let's just walk through the account of God's interaction with Pharaoh. We'll actually start in Exodus chapter 4 and just work our way from chapter 4 through 14 and see how God puts himself on display. God had called Moses to himself. God has decided that he was going to use Moses to be the, the one that he was going to be the leader to bring Israel out of Egyptian captivity. and But God also had a purpose for Pharaoh, that he was going to work in Pharaoh, and Pharaoh was also going to be an instrument in which God used Pharaoh to bring glory to his name. So that God is using Pharaoh for one purpose, and he is using Moses for another purpose. He's using Moses to deliver the Israelites, and he's going to use Pharaoh to, demonst- to uh, cause difficulty upon Israel so that he can then demonstrate his marvelous power and then he can proclaim his name. But notice, before any event begins, what God does. In chapter 4, we can jump into verse 21. It says this, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, See that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. But Notice, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let let him go. Behold, notice, I will kill your son, your firstborn. God says exactly what is going to happen. You're going to go to Pharaoh. You're going to tell Pharaoh, let him go. Pharaoh's heart is going to be hardened. I'm going to harden his heart. He's not going to let Israel go. And I am going to take his firstborn son. This is before now any of the events unfolded, before anything occurs. So what does Moses do? He and Aaron Aaron head out to the rest of chapter 4. He goes to the people of Israel. He tells the people of Israel, you're in luck. God loves you. He's picked you out to be his people. We get to serve the living God. He is coming here to rescue us. All the people are excited by that. This is great. God's on our side. Now we're going to go, we're going to go talk to Pharaoh, and we're going to tell Pharaoh, let the people go. Everyone's excited by that. Chapter 5 comes in, picks up the story in verses 1 through 4. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. Verse 2. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Otherwise, he will fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. Verse 4. The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you draw the people away from their work? Get back to your labors. Pharaoh rejected Moses and Aaron. Pharaoh rejected them because he says, I don't know the Lord. I don't know your God. Who are you talking about? And in fact, on top of that, you're now a distraction. You're over here stirring up the people. You should be laboring. Here he, they course Pharaoh rejects the council you know the story goes on Pharaoh then gets angry Israel is lazy they have too much time on their hands they're listening to these guys Moses and Aaron they're not doing their work so they need to work harder they need to go out and gather their own resources and produce the same amount of bricks that they have produced before and we're going to he's going to turn up the heat on them that's exactly what Pharaoh does says to the leaders, the the foremen who were working, don't provide any resources for the Israelites. Demand that they go out and gather their own straw and build the same amount of bricks that they had produced before. And of course, Israel fell behind in that task. What happened? Israel is now punished by this. They get mistreated. Verse 21 of chapter 5, they say to Moses, May the Lord look upon you and judge you. Moses, you did this to us. You brought us here. May the Lord make you odious, or you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. You did all of this to harm us, to kill us. We're being mistreated. Moses responds. What was Moses' response, 22 and 23? Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Why did you give me this calling? How come you've led me into this difficulty? Isn't this, again, supposed to be God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life? This isn't a marvelous plan. I'm hated by the people. I'm hated by Pharaoh, and now I must be even hated by you. Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. By the way, don't you just see the tendency of the human heart when we're in trials and difficulties is to cast indictments at God? God, you're wrong. Something in you, you have created a problem here. You're unjust. Notice God's response, of course. Verse 1 of chapter 6. And the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion, he will let them go. And under compulsion, he will drive them out of his land. I'm going to accomplish my purposes. This doesn't stop what I am doing. And in fact, I am going to drive, cause him to drive out these people against his own will. He's going to be compulsion. to do it why verse 2 God spoke further to Moses and said to him I am the Lord and I appeared to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as God Almighty but by my name Lord I did not make myself known to them I am the God who has revealed himself I have made himself known and now I am about to make my full name known I am the Lord, and I will accomplish all of my good purposes. So, he, all of this is for a purpose, is what he is saying to Moses. And God is going to accomplish his good purposes. And God is going to go out and he's going to demonstrate his plan. Verse 7 Then I will take you for my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God who brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. i doing all of this to demonstrate to you that there is no one like me and no one can thwart my purposes. No matter how great the opposition by the earthly rulers, leaders, no one can thwart what I am accomplishing. I am the Lord. You can jump down to the end of chapter 6, pick up in verse 28 through chapter 7 and verse 7. It comes to the end, it says, It came about on that day, the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I am the Lord, speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I speak to you. But Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am unskilled in speech. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? Notice again, Moses is stuck on what he could accomplish. It's all dependent on my ability to communicate, God, and I'm not very capable of this. Send Aaron. Chapter 7, verse 1, Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Verse 2, you shall speak all that I am commanded you, all I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel go out of the land. But, verse 3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Look, you're going to go, you're going to proclaim, but I'm going to harden his heart so that I can demonstrate my great signs and wonders. Verse 4, and when Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt by great judgments. Listen, Moses and Aaron, you're going to go. You're going to do this. You're not going to be received, and this is according to my purposes. What purpose? to reveal my signs, to reveal my glory, in essence, to demonstrate my power, to demonstrate that I am the one in control. From here then comes the ten plagues, right? The ten plagues come, the first plague comes, that God turns the Nile River into blood, Notice God's observation about Pharaoh in verse 14 of chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. Turns the water into blood. All the people are in shock about this. They're wondering what in the world is going on. Jump down to verse 22. It says, but the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts and Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to him as the Lord had said first sign comes the turning of water into blood the Egyptians mimic the same sign Pharaoh hardens his heart and doesn't respond what does God do next he brings another sign we know the second plague the plague of frogs that come upon the land. Chapter 8 describes that. Plague of frogs come upon the land, fill the whole land with frogs, terrifies everybody, inconveniences everyone. Pharaoh is desperate for deliverance upon this. Comes to Moses, asks Moses to let uh, let this, this frog curse pass from him and deliver them from it. So Moses says, okay, I'll go before God. I will entreat him for you. He does that, and what happens to Pharaoh's heart? Chapter 8 and verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Again, he turns. Again, he hardened his heart. He turns against God. The next plague, the plague of incense, the plague of gnats that come and fill the land. As much as the dust of the earth, the gnats fill the land. And again, Pharaoh comes asking for deliverance. The, the, the uh, magicians couldn't reproduce that same kind of sign Verse 19 says of chapter 8, Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Open hostility and rejection, that's the third plague. The fourth plague is the plague of flies. Flies fill the land. Again, an incredible nuisance. The people want deliverance. Jump down to verse 32 again. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. Move to the next plague in chapter 9. The cattle die. The livestock of Egypt die, but Israel's livestock is preserved. Not one animal of Israel's die, but Egypt's animals die. Verse 7, there it says this, Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not even one of the livestock of Israel dead. That didn't cause Pharaoh's heart to soften at all, notice, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Every one of these signs come up, every one of the demonstration, the heart of Pharaoh is hardened. Plague of boils come, verse 12 says, And notice the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not listen to them just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. All these sores. Then you have the plague of hail verses 18 and following. So The hail will come and destroy everything. It's destroy the land, destroy even the livestock or any person who is out in the open. If the hail came while they were open, they would be destroyed. And then jump down in verse uh, 20 through 21. You notice there that uh, there was one among the servants of Pharaoh who feared the Lord. uh, feared the word of the Lord, and his servants and his livestock flee into the houses. But he who paid no regard to the word of the Lord left his servants in and his livestock in the field. Those who feared God were delivered. Those who did not fear God were judged. Now you jump down to verse uh, 27. Then Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are the wicked ones. Make supplication to the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Finally, he's had a change of heart. Finally, he is turning, he is under the pressure of God, he is recognizing his wickedness. Verse 34. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not let the sons of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken. I mean, again, there is the, both the... God saying, "I will harden his heart," and Moses and Pharaoh hardening his heart in response to what's taken place. Two more, well, three more plagues left. The next plague of the locusts comes, swarms the land again, seeks deliverance, but again Pharaoh hardens his heart. In verse twenty of chapter ten, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go. The plague of darkness comes, jump down to verse 27. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Which led to the very last plague then, the plague that is celebrated in the Passover. God came and brought judgment upon Egypt and killed all their firstborn sons, their firstborn children. All because Pharaoh would not let Israel go, he, his, their heart was hardened. Notice chapter 11, verse 9 and 10. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you so that my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, yet the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go out of his land. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened it for a purpose, to demonstrate his glory, to demonstrate his signs, to demonstrate his work in the land. You know how the story goes. The judgment comes, the firstborns die. Egypt weeps and mourns. They send Israel away. They say, get out of here, leave, take all your cattle, all your possessions, get out of here, go worship your God. Chapter 14 picks up the occasion. Once they send them out, they come to a realization, what in the world did we just do? We sent them away. And now they're out there wandering in the wilderness. We need to get them back. Verse 4 and 5 says, Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, of chapter 14, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will chase after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all of his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart towards the people, and they said, What is this that we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? Verse 8, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. You remember the story, Israel heads through the Red Sea. The Red Sea gets divided. Israel heads through the Red Sea. God preserves Israel as they move through the task. He guards through a cloud of smoke by day and a cloud of fire by night. He he, preserves. divides Israel from the Egyptian army, then finally lifts up the the dividing wall, lets lets the Egyptian armies chase after Israel. They get into the middle of this road as they are seeing walls of water on each side. That didn't terrify them and stop them. They just kept on charging. Their chariots slip and fall, and then God lets the waters go and absolutely wipes out the Egyptian army. Why all that? That's the context now let's turn back to Romans chapter 9. Paul assumes you knew all of that. So did I. I just pointed out to you. You knew all of that. But it's exactly what Moses pointed out in all that story. I will harden his heart. And the Lord hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Over and over again, every sign, ten times, you couldn't miss it, ten times, the marvelous signs of God were demonstrated in rejection. The rejection, constant rejection by Pharaoh. What are we to understand about that? Well, exactly what Paul says in Romans 9:17, For this very purpose, I raised you up. To demonstrate my power in you. That my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. I did this. God says, I did this. I directed. I accomplished these things so that I would be made known. Verse 18. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. God is God and able to do God things. Because he's God. What kind of things? To choose, to determine, to harden. He can accomplish all of these things. And the very next question we ask then, then how are any of us guilty? If he can harden our hearts, and if he can harden Pharaoh, and then how can he judge Pharaoh? How can he bring any kind of just judgment upon Pharaoh if he's the one hardening Pharaoh's heart? I'm glad you asked that because that's the very next question verse 19 what you will say to me then why does he still find fault who resists his will so you're now understanding God's argument you're understanding the implications exactly what God is saying he is saying first of all I choose I direct I accomplish my purposes and I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I'm compassion. And as we will see next week, he is just in all of his dealings. There's no injustice in God. So this is critical for us because I think we come to these profoundly significant questions. And we are tempted to get in the way and say, well, I got to rescue God. He can't look this bad. I mean, he can't say that he hardened Pharaoh's heart because then he looks bad. And I can't worship a God who, who hardens Pharaoh's heart. I can't worship a God who doesn't love this person, who hardens someone and causes them to do these things. And yet God says, I'm God. I show compassion where I show compassion, and I show mercy where I show mercy because I am good. I do good, I am just, I am righteous. Everything I do is just and good and righteous. Here's the implication, friends. This is what this text demands us to believe as we come to this text. The greatest good is God sovereignly revealing his power and the glory of his name. That is the greatest good. And then for us, that is a stumbling block. No, no, the greatest good is you rescued us. The greatest good is that you showed us love. The greatest good is what you've done for us. That's the greatest good. No, the greatest good is God's revelation of himself to all the creation. That is the greatest good. Greater than Pharaoh being rescued and Israel's personal comfort as they're leaving Egypt, greater than that was God showing his power showing his glory telling moses and israel exactly what was going to happen and then doing it and showing that no one could resist his will that was the greatest good because that's exactly what god did and god can only do what is good he can do no other and he accomplished that and then when we come to the question is that fair yes because he's god Yes, because that's what he says he does. Then the next question, then how can he be just in his judgment? We'll answer that next week. How he can be just in his judgment. Again, I could tell you this week, I was tempted to answer this question in so many different ways. You can run back to Spurgeon. Spurgeon said, you know, thinking about Pharaoh and the hardening of his heart and Moses, and I just showed you, you had Moses and Pharaoh side by side, God interacting with both, but one responded in faith, even in the difficulties, the other one responded in unbelief and hostility, and yet God was the same message to both of them. Say, so, well, what's, you know, what's happening there? And Spurgeon, in his classic way, says this statement, which we've all probably heard, The same sun that hardens the clay melts the wax. God operated just as he always operated, but it was not God who changed. It was the condition of which that God, the soil in which God was operating. Moses, in his soft, believing heart, melted under the commands of God. Pharaoh, in his hard heart, same command, hardened and rejected. That's a sufficient answer. We can go back to depravity. We can go back to Romans chapter 3. We can see that there are none righteous, not even one, none who seeks after God. They were only going to do according to their nature. We can go back to chapter 5 and see that you know, Pharaoh would be in Adam and therefore under condemnation. God is just and all that. But I don't need those answers. What I need is this answer. God can do what he wants and he doesn't need our approval. doesn't need us to say, you're right, God, go do it. He just does what he wants because he is God. He is good. He shows mercy where he will and he shows compassion where he will. And you say then, well then, how is anyone saved? How can anyone be saved? And I can tell you this. No one is rejected because they wanted God, they wanted to follow his ways, and he just wouldn't let them. Everyone is rejected because they were in unbelief They rejected God, and they are under righteous condemnation. You want to be saved? Turn to God, and you will find mercy. For God says, all those who come to me I will not cast out. Turn to God and be saved, and if you turn away from him, you are revealing the condition of your own heart, not the character of God. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for these incredible truths. They are too rich for us, they are profound, they are beyond us, they are also comforting to us because when we are tempted to take on some of the divine glory, we are overwhelmed by the, our own inabilities. When we are tempted to come and rescue you, we are but little children who have no ability When we see the riches of your truth on display, our hearts are comforted by it and our minds are redirected so we can see your marvelous working and we recognize humbly that we are children of grace and mercy, able to follow you because of your marvelous work which you have started within us and will accomplish. So we are comforted by your self-disclosure in your word. When we pray, Father, when we gain a transcendent, glimpse of you, that we would respond in worship and adoration, and at the same time appreciate your nearness to us, that we can call out to you as Father. Indeed, the greatest tragedy isn't, and the greatest wonder isn't, that you hardened Pharaoh's heart. The greatest wonder and the greatest surprise is that you rescued anyone that you opened our eyes to see, and that you showed love to us when we were enemies. And so we we respond in just gratitude for all that you have accomplished, and pray may your word continue to renovate our hearts and minds so that we would believe upon you always and not trust in our own wisdom and understanding. It's in your name we pray. Amen.